Welcome to Skim This. It's safe to say the vaccine rollout in the U.S. has been rocky. And as we hear about other countries vaccinating their populations at a higher rate, it's hard not to get a little jealous of how things are going somewhere else. In our first story this week, we'll break down three COVID-19 vaccine success stories, which, by the way, include one state right here in the U.S. Also on the show, we've got the latest on Trump's tax returns, because that's still a thing. We'll tell you why Illinois is saying bye to cash bail, and we'll roll some tape on a story about, oh, actually, you'll have to guess. And later, to close out Black History Month, we're speaking to one woman on a mission to close the racial wealth gap. All right, let's do it. Okay, we're 11 months into things being the opposite of normal. Work-wise, social life-wise, remember social lives? And unless you're a healthcare worker in another frontline job or are over 70 years old, chances are you're still waiting for your number to be called to get your vaccine. Which makes seeing headlines about vaccine success stories somewhere else lead to a lot of FOMO. Israel leads the fight against COVID-19. One U.S. ally is getting its citizens vaccinated at a far quicker pace. In Israel, it's now the turn of the teenagers. We're now traveling on a one-way road to freedom, and we can begin safely to restart our lives. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we wanted to find out, is the grass really greener on the other side? We enlisted two experts to help us find out. I'm Claire Hannon, Executive Director of the Association of Immunization Managers. Hannon's job involves coordinating meetings of the health officials in every state that oversee vaccination efforts. Also here to help? My name is Saskia Popescu. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and infection preventionist. Let's start our look at vaccine programs that seem to be going well by looking at the UK. Population over 66 million, where... 18 million people have already gotten at least one dose after they already went through the first four priority groups. So those are people over 70, care home residents, healthcare workers, and immunocompromised individuals. They are now pushing out to the next phase and they're expanding to people 60 and over and those deemed clinically vulnerable. So they're really pushing forward. But as for whether the U.S. can merely copy and paste what the U.K. has done, that could be tricky since we can't go back in time. Talk about having some 2024 sight. Even before the UK had its first confirmed case of the coronavirus, the country was reportedly already sketching out what a national vaccination plan would look like. The UK's health minister also ordered a lot of extra doses, just in case, which now means the country is kind of rolling in vaccines. One crazy but true fact? In a recent radio interview, the health minister revealed he was partially influenced by the 2011 film Contagion when he ordered 100 million vaccine doses instead of the 30 million doses he was recommended. In the film, it shows that the moment of highest stress around the vaccine program is not in fact before it's rolled out, when actually it's the scientists and the, and the manufacturers uh, working together at pace, it's afterwards when there is a huge row about the order of priority. If you're wondering, couldn't the US just order lots of vaccine doses too? The answer is yes, and we have. But Hannon says it matters what kind of health system you're using to distribute those doses. 
I just look at the United Kingdom and the way that they roll out vaccines in general. They have universal health care and they do provide their vaccines. So, for example, they rolled out the HPV vaccine for their entire country, for their children in a very, you know, organized way. They can do that because they have more control of their healthcare system. Which brings us to Israel, another country getting attention for its vaccination program. Israel aims to vaccinate its entire adult population by the end of next month, becoming the first country to do so. That's impressive. 4.25 million people have now received at least one dose of the vaccine. That's nearly half of Israel's population. There are drive-through vaccinations. Some clinics run 24-7. Call that hashtag goals. Hannon says, like the UK, Israel has something the US doesn't. Since they have the universal health coverage, they have four large you know, insurance companies, they can reach everyone through that. In addition to having a unified health system, Popescu says Israel made a unique deal with the drug company Pfizer. They really focused on, okay, can we trade vaccine data for vaccines? You know, they made a really great partnership with Pfizer to be doing this, where they helped supply national level data to get just so much access to the vaccine, which is wonderful. Just this week, that deal paid off as Pfizer released a major new study on how its vaccine is performing in real-world conditions. That's useful info for other vaccine manufacturers or governments fighting COVID around the world. Popescu also says, for better or worse, Israel has used both carrots and sticks to convince people to get vaccinated. Israel, I, you know, it just kind of came out, <laughs> I think, this week about the jab for a tab where you could go get vaccinated at a bar and they would buy you a drink, I think, or something. I thought that was really fascinating social dynamics. That carrot mentality is definitely helpful. But then they've also kind of utilized this mixture of incentives and threats, actually. You know, the health minister came out and said, anybody who doesn't get a vaccine is going to be left behind. They've developed these green passports, meaning if you have proof of vaccination, you can go to the gym and you can go to a hotel. So they are literally developing immunity passports, which is something that public health officials have really come out since the beginning of the pandemic and said, we really don't like this. Not a good approach. By now, Israel has succeeded in vaccinating just over half its citizens. But we should also point out that Palestinians living in Gaza, where Israel controls what comes in and out of the territory, were excluded from early vaccination efforts, as were Palestinians living under Israeli occupation in the West Bank, even if that's slowly beginning to change for both groups. MSF, so Doctors Without Borders, recently came out and said, this is a huge issue. You know, we can't talk about the wonderful progress Israel is making with vaccines without acknowledging kind of this darker underbelly that's going on where you are 60 times more likely to get vaccinated in Israel than in Palestine. So between the UK and Israel, with their pandemic foresight and clever vaccine deals, is the US just destined to lag behind with its own vaccine efforts? Our experts told us the lack of a national health care system in the US does make things complicated. I think the public is seeing that. In order to find a vaccine, many local public health agencies have set up large-scale clinics or state-run clinics, and you can pre-register and, and get on a website and, and sort through that. But the vaccine's also going to pharmacies. It's also going to hospitals. And so that becomes a challenge for the consumer to have to go on multiple sites. And some of these sites are new. They weren't necessarily meant for a million people to go on them at one time, so some of them are crashing. 
One state which could have struggled with its vaccine rollout was West Virginia, our third and perhaps most unlikely success story. Here's Popescu. This has not been a state that has particularly been a beacon of health. They've really struggled with high mortality rates and diabetes and overdose deaths. So this is a state that has struggled. They really went all in, though, when they were starting to see issues with vaccinating people over the age of 80 in late December, that things were bogged down. They were having a lot of administrative logistical issues. And they took a step back and said, all right, if our registration process is all online and at least 30% of our population doesn't have access to the internet or use it, how are people actually going to use this? And so they set up a hotline and that really took off. West Virginia's decision to use a more old-fashioned system, a telephone hotline, for making vaccine appointments actually fixed some of the problems a fancy website couldn't and helped the state understand the struggles its citizens were facing. Another thing states could do, Popescu says, is address the concerns of people in the U.S. who are scared about the cost of healthcare by messaging about the basics. Thankfully, the vaccines are free, but I know people that are like, am I going to be charged? Because when they sign up, it says, are you going to be paying with insurance? And I think that's a really confusing piece for people when it's like, no, 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 they're free. But some of these systems have asked, are you, you know, are you using insurance? That component, I think, can be really scary for some people because they're like, oh my gosh, am I going to get there and they're going to make me pay? And what if I can't do that? So the U.S. probably can't perfectly replicate the vaccine rollout programs that have been successful in other countries. But despite the U.S. having a fractured and largely private healthcare system, there are some local success stories. And Hannon says, at the end of the day, time is on America's side here, even if many of us still need to be patient until it's our turn in line. If you're having trouble finding the vaccine, you're not alone. We just don't have enough supply to meet the demand right now. But the outlook is very, very good. We have production going up. We have allocations to states going up every week now for the last several weeks. The expectation that we will have 200 million doses out by the end of March is very good. Oh, and as we'll explain next, there's likely some immediate good news on the vaccine front just a few days away. We could potentially have another vaccine. That's one dose coming on, on the market this weekend. Speaking of which, this week, the FDA reviewed another COVID-19 vaccine made by Johnson & Johnson and found the vaccine was safe and effective. That means we could see a third vaccine approved for use within the coming days. So we wanted to know what's different about this vaccine compared to the other ones already in use. Here's the answer in 60 seconds. There are a few main differences between the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines already out there. The first is the vaccine technology being used. Pfizer and Moderna's shots use something called mRNA technology, and they're the first vaccines to ever be approved that use it. J&J's vaccine, meanwhile, is more old school and is built off technology that's been used before, like for the Ebola vaccine. The second thing that's different, the J&J vaccine only requires one dose, while the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require two, administered several weeks apart. The third difference is efficacy rates. The Moderna and Pfizer efficacy rates are both really high, over 90% effective at preventing infection, while J&J's efficacy rate is closer to 66%. But while that rate is lower than the other two vaccines currently available, 
The thing to know is that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is 85% effective at preventing severe disease, meaning experts say this new vaccine, even if it's slightly less effective overall, will still be useful to fight the pandemic. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. All right, let's get to two headlines from the week's news and give you a little bit of context. First up, NBC News confirming the Manhattan District Attorney now is in possession of former President Donald Trump's tax returns. Here's the context on why this isn't just a routine bit of document collecting. Since he began his 2016 presidential run, Trump repeatedly said, I'd love for you to see my tax returns, but claimed, sorry, you can't, since the IRS is still reviewing them. Thanks to that waiting game, Trump became the first president in decades not to release thorough data about his finances. But this week, after an 18-month legal battle, the Supreme Court finally told Trump, you can't stop this. And now, Manhattan's top prosecutor has possession of eight years of Trump's personal taxes. That should help get to the bottom of whether Trump and his businesses committed fraud by lying about their finances in order to get loans or tax write-offs. But with reportedly millions of pages of documents for Manhattan's DA to sort through, it could take a while before we hear more about that investigation. Next up, this week, Illinois became the first state in the U.S. to eliminate cash bail. Here's the context. This law, which will be phased in over two years, is part of a larger bill that includes some other criminal justice reform measures like requiring police to wear body cameras, a ban on chokeholds, and guidelines for decertification of police officers. Sounds straightforward, but these steps are already proving divisive and have been criticized by one state police union as being too harsh on law enforcement. But advocates for criminal justice reform argue it's the cash bail system that's controversial for how it disproportionately impacts poorer and BIPOC Americans. According to one study, as many as 74% of the people sitting in jails are pre-trial detainees, who'd normally be able to go home if they just had more money. Side note, we know cash bail reform is a major nationwide issue and that Illinois is just the beginning of this story. We're working on a bigger feature on this, so stay tuned. We know that women face obstacles when trying to build their wealth. And Black women face even more of those obstacles because of something called the racial wealth gap. Quick refresher. The racial wealth gap is the difference between how much money BIPOC people in the U.S. are able to hold on to and invest compared to white Americans. What does that racial wealth gap look like in practice? It's everywhere. Like at school, Black women have the highest student loan debt of any racial or ethnic group. A recent study found that 12 years after graduating, white men have paid off 44% of their loans, while Black women, on average, actually owed 13% more. That problem is only exacerbated when Black women get into the workforce, where they face yet another obstacle towards paying off their student loans. Maybe you've heard that overall, women are paid 81 cents to every man's dollar. Well, it's 62 cents for Black women, and for Latinas, it's 55 cents. Another area that's affected by the racial wealth gap? Property ownership. Only about 44% of Black families in the U.S. own their home, compared with nearly 74% of white families. 
And a recent study found that almost 28% of Black applicants were denied mortgages, compared with only 11% of white applicants. And by the way, we're only scratching the surface with those statistics. Let's take a step back. How did this happen? Racial inequity has existed in the United States for hundreds of years. That inequity also means that racist policies around money have become institutionalized or legalized. And that systemic inequality has impacted the economic fate of BIPOC families in the U.S., who have a smaller share of the nation's wealth than white families. This week, we wanted to introduce you to a woman who's helping her clients and her community fight that racial wealth gap. Hi, everyone. I'm Jayla Eaton. I am a licensed attorney in California and a certified fiduciary advisor in my business on my own financial. And I strive to help my clients with closing the racial wealth gap and really putting together a plan for their life and their future. Jayla thinks about the racial wealth gap like this. I usually define it to my clients using terminology when it comes to stocks. So I teach a stocks class and I let my clients know when you see that your portfolio has risen 5% to you, I know that's wonderful because you're making money and that's what that means. But the more important thing to know is your benchmark. How is the rest of the market performing? Because that's how you find out how your account is actually doing. And it's the same with the racial wealth gap. How are you doing in relation to how everyone else is doing? If you're a track star and you're on the the field with one of the best in the world and you're thinking, I'm I'm about to cross the finish line, but Usain Bolt has crossed it like 15 minutes ago. Now you know how you're doing and you can take steps from there to get where you need to be and try and close that gap. Jayla told us her desire to educate and empower Black communities is rooted in her own experience and the experience of her family. I see a lot more institutional racism in working in corporate America. In the financial area, I was always the only person that looked like me. I'm always, always overqualified and still looked at like, hmm, I don't know if what she's saying has has valid, has merit, even though this is my passion project, I will not speak unless I know it for a fact. I've seen more discrimination in the pay gap. I think my my first job out of law school, they offered me $50,000 despite having two degrees and being licensed. Of course, I was able to negotiate out of that, but that's because I had those skills. There are others that weren't trained as a negotiator and a mediator like I was. And it was a recession, so we were a bit more desperate than that. So a lot of people had to take that. That's what's really hard to understand about the entire gap. There's no one thing that we can do that's really going to close it. And it's definitely not going to happen in one generation. It's going to take time to close this gap. I say that it's everywhere because it's in three different generations of my family. My grandmother is dealing with it from the perspective of her great-great-grandfather had land that he purchased in the 1900s. That's still in our family, technically, but because they didn't do their estate planning, because they weren't using their wills and trusts, and now my grandmother is in court 
even though it's it's in her name, she's paying the taxes right now. She's buying back her own property. My mom, at her generation, they didn't have to know how to invest. She has a pension. So the her employer was taking on the investment risk and doing all that and just guaranteeing that she's going to get some money. But now, with our generations, millennials have 401ks, they, they have IRAs, they're self-directed. We have all of the investment risks. We need to know how to invest and we don't have parents that can really teach us because they didn't know how to do it. After Jayla got her law degree, she started working in estate planning where she saw just how stark the differences in wealth can be. My mind just opened to, oh my goodness. There's a whole nother world that I never knew about. It's seeing a hundred million dollars in one trust owned by one man, just that's where the light bulb turned on. And it was, how did he get here? How do I help others get here? And I realized it was, you had to have that financial literacy because to amass that much money, you had to know how, how to manage money and not be afraid of it. Now, she helps families of color build generational wealth, which includes setting up wills and trusts. For my clients, their goal is based on, like I said, their vision and values. If they're really focused on making sure that their, their child starts at a different position than they started at, then that's what we focus on. And it just so happens that once you're transferring your wealth and giving your knowledge to the next generation and doing things a little different than you saw done, then you're closing the racial wealth gap slowly. So that's some of the work Jayla is doing herself. But we wanted to know, how can we work to change that gap? She told us it starts with having conversations about money. One of the things that I've found, most people who are more financially savvy or financially confident, they had a family, they had friends that they were talking about money with. Whereas a lot of my community and first gen, money is taboo. We don't talk about that. We don't know what's going on. For allies, recognize that you may have financial knowledge that others may not. It's very important when it comes to realizing your privilege, realizing, oh, I'm in a different position. What can I do to help somebody else? It's just, hey, do I, do I have a house? Do I, is this a paid off house? Do I have friends who are looking into buying a house? Can I help warn them about, okay, no down payment sounds good, but you want to pay this off. So having conversations is most important. Another way we can do our small part is by supporting businesses and causes that give back to BIPOC communities. Though on a larger scale, it's going to take legislative and systemic changes, which we know will take time. Meanwhile, incremental change is most important because everybody wants this quick action, instant gratification. It is not that. You are planting seeds. And those seeds may be harvested by you. It may bear fruit for you, but more often than not, you have to be okay with knowing that you're taking steps, you're planting, but you may not be here for the, the fully grown tree and the shade that it brings and the fruit that it brings. And 
people who are really dedicated to this mission are okay with that. Recently, we were inspired by a certain game show. I can name that tune. In five, four, three, two, and one. It's the new name that tune, baby. We're bringing it back. And wanted to see if we could do our own spinoff, you know, name that news, to see if you can match a piece of audio to a news story. The prize? Skim this glory, aka the satisfaction of knowing you beat us at our own game. All right, roll tape. I spent summers in Mesita, our small village on Laguna Pueblo, the location of my grandparents' traditional home. It was there that I learned about my culture from my grandmother by watching her cook and by participating in traditional feast days and ceremonies. It was in the cornfields with my grandfather where I learned the importance of water and protecting our resources where I gained a deep respect for the earth. Props if you've already figured out who this is. If not, here's a hint. This person got a grilling this week from the Senate. As a general matter, should the federal government continue to permit oil pipelines in the country? Why don't you believe the grizzly management should return back to the states? Do you agree with that assessment that climate change is a major threat to the United States and the world? I wanted to make sure that you are committed to using a science-based approach when it comes to protecting the Arctic wildlife. That person in the line of fire was Representative Deb Holland, in her own words. An indigenous woman from humble beginnings. During her confirmation hearing this week to become Secretary of the Interior, Holland's nomination was a big deal for a few reasons. She'd be only the third woman in the history of the department to hold the post, and if confirmed, would become the first Native American ever to hold a cabinet position. But that's not why she faced a number of tough questions like this on Tuesday morning. What is your approach going to be with regards to oil and gas? Should the federal government continue to permit coal mines in this country? You support a ban on fracking and no new pipelines? Even though the Department of the Interior isn't that well known to most people, some of the agencies that fall under its control might sound more familiar, like the National Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. These agencies have a lot of responsibility, it's up to them to balance protecting cultural heritage or the environment with activities that could make the land economically productive, like through forestry, mining, and oil exploration. So now that you know what Holland would oversee, it kind of makes sense that a number of politicians would want to know her stance on climate issues. Holland, who joined protesters at the Dakota Access Pipeline a few years ago, has indicated that she'd like to ban fracking on public land. She's also supported the Green New Deal, those positions have made environmentalists hopeful that Holland's nomination could signal a real shift in the DOI's approach to the climate. Because as a reminder, President Trump's past department heads, including a former oil and gas lobbyist, didn't hold those same more progressive views. So some big policy changes could be in store, especially since the Department of the Interior literally has the power to shape what America looks like by deciding which kinds of energy or climate projects can or can't move forward. Before we go today, we wanted to shine a spotlight on people going the extra mile to help their communities in a really difficult time. Last week, Texas basically froze over. 
millions lost power in a historic winter storm. And while power has mostly been restored, now there are other problems. Our whole apartment is flooded, y'all. It's water coming from the ceiling because some pipes burst upstairs. Y'all, look at the water. Homes in Texas are flooded after pipes that froze last week burst as temperatures started to rise again. As a result, many Texans still don't have drinking water, and local plumbing companies say their phones have been ringing off the hook. There's so much demand for help that, by one estimate, in Austin, there's a two-month wait for professional plumbers, which left... Ryan Dawson. ...feeling pretty frustrated. There's not enough plumbers in the Southeast to help Austin and the rest of Texas right now. There's so many burst pipes. So he started a group, which named itself... The Austin Gorilla Plumber Corps. Spoiler, Gossin is not a professional plumber. I'm a part-time landlord. I have a, a small number of rentals around the city. So I'm, I'm handy with a lot of different stuff. I'm not particularly good at any particular trade. At the moment, I'm driving home from the east side, covered in filth. And uh, normally, this time of day, I'm watching Netflix or eating dinner. Last week, he had been giving people lifts to warming stations after buildings lost power. I was driving my van down to some apartment complexes. There's water gushing out from external water heaters on the side of the building. There's water flowing down from the floors above. Like, the building has just become uninhabitable. At that point, I realized, as a landlord, like, everything is freezing now, and it's going to be frozen for a few days, and when it unfreezes, we're going to need plumbers. I've been living here for more than 20 years, and I've never had a pipe freeze or burst. But now it happened to almost everybody. So after talking to a few friends who, like him, aren't licensed plumbers, but thought they might be able to help, Gossin put out a call on social media. I created a Google form and started sending that out to people that had plumbing problems. Right now, it's just five guys. We have a very long list, a spreadsheet of people who have requested help. We're trying to figure out how to expand our capacity and help as many people as possible that don't have the resources to help themselves. They also set up a GoFundMe page to reimburse members of the Gorilla Plumber Corps for parts they've been buying for repairs out of pocket. Gossin says he's just hoping he can make a difference in his community. Sometimes the reactions are really sweet. Yesterday I was given tamales. Oh, and a rose. I got a rose at one place. This is definitely what I feel like is the best use of my time as a person right now, even though it's not getting me anything personally. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Bashir. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 